You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Holy Father, we give you thanks for this day, for this time to be together to pray and sing your praises and hear your word. Watch over us today, bless us and keep us. We ask that by your Holy Spirit you would strengthen our hearts to trust more and more in your love that you've given to us in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. A reading from Philippians. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead." Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I have to say that I don't usually lead on the first or second day with the Patrick Swayze fact. It's it's normally a second or third date kind of fact. But it is good to be with you all here again today. I married my wife, Christy, two weeks after I graduated from college. So I got married quite early. One phenomenon that I missed by marrying early is internet dating. And while I'm quite satisfied with having not gone through that process, because there are very few things that I find um, more daunting than the idea of trying to convince someone to like me romantically at this point in my life, I do have a certain curiosity about the whole enterprise. And not too long ago, I read a story about a man who had grown frustrated with how most dating sites work, because you only show your good sides on these sites. So even though you spend most Saturdays on the couch in your sweatpants, watching Netflix and eating Twizzlers, on your profile, you love hiking, and you volunteer at your local dog shelter, and your diet is all kale and smoothies. And the problem that this guy saw is that the reality never meets up to the presentation you're bound to be disappointed when you actually meet your date. You're set up for failure. It will always not be quite as you have presented yourself. So this guy took it upon himself to start a new dating website that he called Settle for Love. And I think we can probably all agree that settle is not exactly a word that really inspires one in relationships. But the idea of this site is that you wouldn't post only good pictures, but you'd also have some unflattering ones. You wouldn't just lay out all of your positives, but all of your negatives. And after some initial growth, some excitement, some publicity, 
the site stagnated. Even the creator of the site himself met his wife on christianmingle.com and not on his own website. <laughs> Must be disappointing in some ways. But the creator realized that nobody wants to be honest. Nobody wants to show their bad side in something so fragile as dating. And beyond that, no one can be trusted to be honest about, about what their bad side actually is. So it's one thing to say, you know, I am a serial criminal who always puts on the toilet paper roll the wrong way. That's the sort of fact that you can own up pretty easily. It should always go up and over, never under. It's one thing to sort of admit to light things like that. It's another thing to say, I sometimes have suicidal thoughts, or I have anger issues, or I am deeply insecure. Nobody wants to let those things out in the open, because I think we all want to be the kind of people whom others will love and can find attractive. So often our lives can feel a little bit like walking through a minefield, or we're trying to navigate how to define whoever I am, while also figuring out how to hold back those weird or sad or off-putting elements of ourselves. In John Green's most recent novel, and John Green is a young adult author, he recently wrote a novel called Turtles All the Way Down. Um, there's a scene where the protagonist is trying to convince her friend that she is not into him for his money. And she says to him, you are not your money. And he responds to her, then what am I? And she says, I is the hardest word to define. I is the hardest word to define. And as I read that sentence, 35,000 feet up in the air in an airplane, I thought, thank you, young adult author. That is a very good way of putting it. It's something I hadn't thought of quite that way. I can be the hardest word to define. As an internet dating, so in life, to myself and to the world and before God, who am I? And to get at an answer for that question, I want to spend a little bit of time with the Apostle Paul today. In the part of Philippians that I just read, Paul tells the Philippians that if anybody had a reason for confidence in who they were and who they were before the world, he had more. If someone were to put that question before him, who am I? He would have his answers readily available. Here is how I define my I. He lists his deep connections to Israel. He had very religious parents. He was born into the people of God, and he was circumcised on the right day. Like his namesake, King Saul, he was a member of the tribe of Benjamin, which had the distinction of being one of the only tribes that remained loyal to the house of King David. He says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, at a time when many Israelites probably couldn't read or speak Hebrew, he could do this. And he was also deeply religious. He was a Pharisee. And we know that Pharisees emphasized things like purity and holiness and devout worship and keeping the law. He says that he had such devotion that he even persecuted those blasphemous Christ believers. According to the standards of the flesh, he was blameless in relationship to the law. And so really what we get from this is that whatever you and I have accomplished in our life, Paul probably thought that he had accomplished more in his. And really, he probably had. In his world, he had what mattered most for his definition of who he was, his sense of his I. But today, it is his perspective on his identity and accomplishments, seen from the vantage point of the cross, 
that I think is instructive for us in learning how to have a sense of self that actually provides a firm foundation for our life in the world. Because our culture, like Paul's, is one where our self-worth and our identity is defined often by our accomplishments and our appearance. If we're being honest, I think we know that we have an easy, quick and dirty checklist for determining a person's worth. So we ask, what's their job? How much money do they make? What sort of house do they have? How nice is it? How nice do they dress? Where do they go to school? How in shape are they? How good do they look? So forth and so on. All of our societal markers of worth tend to be pretty stereotypical and about skin deep. But it makes it so that when we talk about ourselves, when we start to talk about who we are before the world, we can sound a lot like Paul. When we talk about self-worth, the message is almost always unmistakably that you are the sum total of your life decisions, your accomplishments and appearance, and your prospects. But as Paul said, but whatever gain I had, whatever I had accumulated in my world and in my life, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. All of our worldly definitions of self in the light of Christ are seen to be of trivial significance. The only thing that matters is Christ and he is given to us independently and without consideration of who we are before the world. Whether we have a lot by the world's standards and so are proud of it, or we have a very little in our despondent. God's grace sets us all on the same level. Before God, we are all known to be loved and forgiven in Jesus Christ. Our accomplishments, what we do in the world, these things can all be perfectly fine when they're not giving us our identity, when they're not controlling how we live towards others, nor giving us our ultimate goals in life. And that's what they were doing for the Apostle Paul in this passage. That's what he looks back to his past life and sees that was happening. And that's why he says, for Christ's sake, I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. There's sometimes a temptation to think of Christ as just another stock that gets added to our portfolio. He's just another thing that we add to our accomplishments and what we've done in the world. But Paul says that Christ is the goal towards which his life is now directed, rather than all of those self-appointed goals that he had in his prior life. He wants now to be found in Christ, to have a righteousness not based on his accomplishments, not based on what he had done, but based on faith in Christ. He wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. He wants to know even Christ's sufferings so that he might attain to the resurrection from the dead. And this is the illustration in Paul's life of how faith recalibrates our lives from being guided towards all of these worldly forms of capital and their frivolous goals and ends to looking to Jesus Christ alone, desiring in faith Christ and the goal that he has for us in the resurrection. Everything else lies behind. And the only thing that lies ahead is Christ. And Paul realizes that if you are to think about your worth and your identity, not based on the values of the world, but based only on this gift that's been given to you freely in Jesus Christ, it will look foolish. You will sound weird. But he insists 
that this is the only thing that matters. There is one time in my life where I've sort of clearly got a bit of an inkling of what this foolishness might feel like. So I spent five years um, in England doing postgraduate studies at Durham University. I got a good degree from a good school and I studied under a great scholar. And if you are prone to being impressed by things like that, I just let you know you need to be around me for about a minute and 15, maybe a minute and 20 seconds to know that you should not be impressed at all. But part of being in this academic world, and one thing you can't really avoid, are academic conferences. And every year, thousands of nerds descend upon a major American city to attend the annual meeting of the Society of Biblical Literature. So at this meeting, you can hear academic papers, you can buy all of the books that your money will allow for, you can sit there and watch people walking around super stressed with grimaces on their faces because they're nervous about important meetings and interviews, and overall it's just a very, very weird time. But everyone at this meeting has a tag, and on that tag will have your name and your institution. And most of the time when you're interacting with someone you don't know, you get about one-tenth of a second of eye contact before their eyes immediately go down to look at who you are, what your name is, and where you're affiliated, what your institution is. They want to see if you are a person that's worth interacting with, whether this is worth my time. And often it's really about that explicit. Nobody tries to hide it. And while I was at Durham, and Durham was on my name tag, a few more people were interested in me. They'd want to know what I was working on or whether I'd be interested in being part of this project or this edited book, and they'd want to know what it was like to study under my supervisor. As a slight introvert, I kind of hated it, but status is status and the ego does as it pleases, so you kind of enjoy it in some ways. But after I finished my postgraduate studies and I was in my ordination training, there were a few institutions that I perhaps could have claimed, but I didn't really feel comfortable doing it. So I left my institution blank, which is a huge sin at these conferences. I was Ori McFarland, the institutionless. And boy, did that change the conference experience dramatically. Because in myself, I was nothing special to anyone besides my friends. Unless you had stumbled across my ridiculously expensive book or one of my esoteric articles, you had no reason to think that I was a person worth talking to. And so almost every interaction felt a little bit like speed dating, but I had a huge booger on my face. It's, it's like, Ori McFarland, no institution, ding, you're done. And at first I was really bothered by this. I was, no, I'm, I'm smart, I'm worth talking to, you should want to get to know me. And then once that sort of shock wore off and a little bit of displeasure, I started to feel okay about it. Once I got used to the shock of the thing, I found myself remarkably free. The conference experience got much better. And it's not just because I'm kind of an introvert, but it's because I was let off the hook of having to define myself through all of those standard conference canons of status. All of a sudden, my degree and my publications and my alma mater didn't matter. Nobody cared to ask about them. Nobody wanted to know. And I was free just to go about life enjoying my friends and focusing on the things that really mattered, like eating good food. And for me, I learned just the very 
tiniest lesson and letting go of this self-constructed definition of I, this sense of self that I had built up and I was so intensely emphatic on putting up before the whole world. I learned a little bit of what it would be like letting it go. It felt like a parable of life for me. I is often the hardest word to define. We aren't always sure what to put on our name tags or where to find our self-worth. But the gospel says to us each and every day, every time we turn to it, it says, let me define that for you. Christ's death and resurrection destroys all of the spiritual calculus that we work out in our heads so often to confirm our worth and identity. Because God's grace in Jesus Christ comes to you independently of everything that gives worth to us before the world, whether it's economical or social or cultural or spiritual. We have nothing, absolutely nothing in our lives that makes us fit to receive God's grace in Jesus. But we also have nothing that turns him away from us. In Christ you have been justified. You have been made and counted righteous freely. Your sins, faults, and failures are not counted against you. They are not now, nor have they been, but Christ has been counted for you. This is the deepest reality of your being in the gospel, that Christ Jesus has written his name on your name tag. And so the gospel says that when God looks at you, he doesn't see you according to what you have done or failed to do in the world. He doesn't see a proud sinner or a broken sinner but he sees Jesus Christ in his righteousness. Your identity, your sense of self-worth, and your I, it does not have to be based in or built on or founded upon the house of cards that is your life, either the positive or the negative. And again, it's not that there's no value to your work or your accomplishments or your dreams. Is that none of those things provide the criteria according to which God and Jesus Christ loves you, nor do they ultimately define who you are. As Paul would say elsewhere, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live by in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the answer to the question of how to define your I. The life lived by faith looks to Christ and knows that your identity is unassailable in him. May we find our hope in knowing that sin doesn't define our I, death doesn't define it, our successes and failures don't define it. But by faith, Christ alone is the definition of your I. I can think of nothing better than that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.